It's Wednesday, April 8th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, joining me in studio for Million Dollar Portfolio, Mr. Jason Moser. Thanks for being here. Happy yes, Wednesday. Sir. Happy Wednesday. Happy to be here. A lot going on. Yes. Alcoa reports after the market. That's not a lot. That's not a lot, but it's it, it does it does signify the beginning of earnings season. It but uh, but we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the cable companies, which are very much in the news. We've got an IPO on the horizon. We will dip into the full mailbag. The Masters is also kicking off soon. So uh, you're a golf guy, so we'll get a, a Masters preview. I mean, earnings season and the Masters. And like, the for Masters. Me, this is like one hell of a one-two right there. It's... I don't know. I don't know what other financial podcasts are doing today, but I bet we're the only one doing a Masters preview. Um, but let's start with some news from Silicon Valley, and it seems like. Part rumor and part news, um, but I, I think the the news aspect elevates it, and that is Twitter, and reports that Twitter has hired Goldman Sachs as an advisor, amidst rumors that there are some big companies looking to buy Twitter, looking to approach Twitter with buyout offers, and keep in mind. This is a company that, at the moment, has a market cap of somewhere in the neighborhood of $33, $34 billion. And the big name being bandied about is Google. First, do you think, do you think that would be a good idea for Google? So, for Google, yeah, I actually do. I mean, I think for Google, it makes a lot of sense to want to go after something like Twitter. I mean, I think that of all of the businesses that are pining for mass appeal on the social front, Google has got to be the one because their core advertising platform is as ubiquitous as it is and as helpful as it is. I mean, it is facing, I think, some headwinds here as we move on to our app sort of based environment. I mean, a lot of people are now conducting searches just within those apps, and Google is being used less and less frequently. We know that the real estate uh, for their advertising on those on those apps is is you know the, the real estate is, is smaller so the the they're able to you don't get as much money for those advertisements so so Google uh, for all for all of the merits of Google plus and I mean I, I never I never used Google plus uh, but I mean it's it's ultimately been a failure I mean it, it's not caught on I think they're basically disbanding it and, and, and sort of turning it into a number of different sorts uh, sort of things but but you know, for Google, I think trying to figure out a way to get in on that social uh, media space in whatever capacity they can makes a lot of sense. So, you know, that's always been sort of the the rumor, really, ever since Twitter went public, was that maybe Google would want to acquire them. Facebook tried to acquire Twitter before Twitter went public. Twitter said no. Uh, Facebook is another name that's been. Uh, shot out here recently is is this rumor sort of uh, spread spread around uh, financial media. Who knows what kind of substance it holds? I mean, I I personally, as a Twitter shareholder, would rather see Twitter on its own. I think that uh, you know the you can see sort of the sentiment there in the financial media starting to turn. I think people are starting to realize the reach this company has. It's more than just a platform where people send out you know real time sorts of feelings or, or news snippets or whatever. I mean, they're they're doing a lot a lot of things to become more and more relevant. So uh, the thing is with with Google or Facebook, if, if either one of these companies are trying to uh, acquire Twitter, I mean, it, it is a it would be a premium they'd have to pay, but it's not like they couldn't do it. I mean, they both have healthy balance sheets, but also remember, I mean, they can use their shares as currency at will. I mean, no one can do a thing about that in, in either case. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this—it's rumor now. It wouldn't surprise me if it's actually uh, if there's actually a grain of truth to it. 
and Twitter, I mean, just to get back to the stock, Twitter stock up this week on these reports. When I think about Facebook and Google being probably the two likeliest candidates, and you make a great point about their not just their balance sheet, but also being able to use stock as currency. The one problem that I think Google has that Facebook doesn't in this regard is with regulators. Yep. Because amidst reports recently that regulators in the EU are looking to bring an antitrust suit, and I, it, there does not appear in the US at this moment to be that same sort of appetite among regulators. I think if Google went out and said, we're going to buy Twitter for Forty billion, or you know, pick your whatever the number. That's almost irrelevant. If Google were to buy Twitter, I could see U.S. regulators starting to step up their interest in possibly antitrust. I think, I think regulators certainly have Google in their crosshairs more so than Facebook. But I think Facebook is quickly catching up there. I mean, these are both two very big companies, very relevant in. Uh, you know everything we do, kind of on a day-to-day basis. You know, Facebook has become much more than just Facebook, and Google is obviously more than just Google. Uh, so yeah, I think in any which, in any case, uh, you know, any any type of a deal that was at least uh, offered up there, I I think it would certainly undergo uh, some serious scrutiny. I, I think the one the one point that plays out here uh, that, that would probably I, I think. May, I think it would help a deal go through. Really, is that Twitter does have such a a large international presence already, so it's really not just uh, something subject to you know domestic policy, so to speak. But I mean, they they do obviously have a a very wide global reach, which uh, you know could could play into sort of the the decision making there. But but yeah, either way, it would certainly receive some scrutiny. Let's move on to the cable companies because for all the talk of cord cutting. Cord cutting is happening. It's just not happening as quickly as I think some people were maybe expecting. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a whole lot going on in the cable industry. And uh, I still get the Washington Post newspaper delivered to my home. Do you? I do. And I picked it up this morning. And right there on the front page, big story on the cable industry. And the the key poll quote is from the story is, it has been the worst year in recent memory for cable networks. And the story goes on to really dig into how some of these cable networks are starting to get cut from cable providers because cable providers are looking to cut costs and you know the weather channel which once upon a time the weather channel I I am old enough that I've been able to watch the entire arc of the weather channel which is ah uh, yes just from from inception to people thinking who in the world would watch weather to it becoming this enormously popular channel and along the way hugely a huge financial success yep and then they start charging providers more and then recently some providers saying you know what we're not going to pay it because people are using real time apps to get their weather information yeah and it just you know for it's in, uh, the story struck me because when I look at and I don't think I don't think I'm alone in this regard. When I look at sort of the battle being played out in the cable universe, I look at the main cable providers and sort of the disruptors: Netflix, HBO with its new HBO Go app, you know, streaming app, etc., that sort of thing. But this was a little bit of an eye opener to the very real challenges now going on for these networks. And I was just curious what what your take was when you 
when you saw this and sort of the when you look at this universe now? Yeah, I mean, as a Verizon customer, I, I was reading that article. It, it it sounded like the Weather Channel was counting on um, customer sort of blowback on Verizon cutting the Weather Channel. I mean, as a Verizon customer, I, I couldn't care less of the Weather Channels because I'd never use it. I mean, between my phone, I mean, really, you know, and tablets and the Amazon Echo we have at home, I mean, I get weather whenever I want. It's at my fingertips. I wouldn't dare watch the Weather Channel anymore, so it doesn't really make any sense unless you're talking about like that once-off sort of big storm of the century thing that might come up, where they do really score uh, big on that. It's interesting content, no doubt. But you know, And I mean, I who think- doesn't enjoy seeing Jim Cantori reporting live from a beach in North Carolina as a hurricane is bearing down upon him. Exactly. Or better yet, as I think you called out on a podcast earlier, when he you know comes to D.C. for like the snowstorm of the century, only to have that storm underperform. Completely right? miss us. <laughs> so, But yeah, I mean, you're looking at, I think, a lot of these niche channels that uh, before were sort of enjoying a free ride, more or less, because we were required to pay this big bill. Uh, they're now witnessing some serious pressures, and I think a lot of them are going to go away because people don't really want them. You don't really watch them. And so, I mean, TV today is truly a function of options now. I mean, before, I mean, just look at the evolution of it. I mean, it was it was the TV, and you, you were just thankful to have a TV and a couple of channels. Uh, then they brought cable into the mix, and now, wow, you had TV and all these channels, and you could just choose whatever you want, and it was neat that you had all of these options. But really now, I mean, the Internet, which you know has just totally disrupted virtually everything in our lives, uh, has, has certainly disrupted TV because, I mean, it's ultimately put TVs in our hands and our pockets. And I, and I think that ultimately what we're looking at here is sort of – it's a redefining of, of the word bundle. You know, I think that now we're going to – I think that as time goes on, we're going to more and more and more be able to choose our bundle. And that bundle is going to be Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu and it's going to be HBO Go and it's going to be whatever else decides to make that move into into the streaming world. I mean, look at your broadcasters like CBS. CBS has done just that. Um, NBC, I believe, is is done that as well. Uh, and, and you see someone like CBS, for for example, that's done a very good job of partnering up with Amazon.com to produce content that can can go live on CBS, uh, you know, in a linear fashion, and then become available for streaming on on Amazon a few days later. So it's interesting to see how the the old school broadcasters are partnering up with sort of the new wave broadcasters in order to be able to, to be a part of sort of that redefining. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that. Again, this is going to be something that, as time goes on, I think we're just seeing a, re- a redefining of the word bundle, and it's going to become something that we can more and more choose ourselves. The The interesting part to me will be ultimately to see how the pricing on all of this works out, because the argument for the longest time has been pricing first and sort of personalization second. I mean, at some point, do we hit a point where you know the demand for, for a, a handful of those channels out there that we really want does that total really kind of come up to close to what you're paying now for cable? Because if so, then at least the pricing argument is gone. And were you better off with cable before? I don't know. That'll that'll remain to be seen. We have yet another IPO in the works, Bojangles, which is a chicken and biscuit restaurant. Yes, it is. Uh, really focused in the southeast United States. They have filed their S-1 to go public at some point, presumably in the next couple of months, um, you've looked through the filing. What stood out to you? Yeah, they said the first half of 2015, I think you and I both agree, that needs to be ASAP. Yes. <laughs> Take advantage of, of Go the now. lofty market conditions. But yeah, I mean, as, as someone who grew up in South Carolina, uh, moved up here from Georgia, very familiar with Bojangles, we call it the Jangler. Uh, 
Jason likes his chicken spicy. What can I tell you, Chris? <laughs> I mean, that's what these guys do. Is spicy chicken, uh, terrific sweet tea, seasoned fries, all the fixings. It's definitely not the food that's the best for you, uh, but it, it is very good. I think that the biggest problem I see with Bojangles is, number one, it's in about 10 states today. It's basically a southeastern kind of, of concept. I don't know how well they'll be able to translate elsewhere. I mean, they see ultimately with 622 restaurants today, in the 10 states in which they operate now, they see an opportunity for around 1,400 stores. They believe that nationwide they have an opportunity for about 3,500 stores. Now, to me, that seems like it's pretty optimistic. Certainly achievable, but seems optimistic. And I'm not sure that it will translate uh, you know, elsewhere. Because you got to think, I mean, places out west where, you know, you have something like El Pollo Loco or whatever like that. I mean, you've got to go out there and basically sort of show people why your way is better. And, and I don't know that nece- that necessarily is a no-brainer. But, you know, they work on a franchising model, which um, they, they have about 60% of their stores franchised. And while that's great, it helps them grow very quickly. It's, it's not, uh, you know, it doesn't really do a whole heck of a lot in driving that, that top-line sales number. So, I, I was looking at just a few numbers to give you some comparisons here. Um, you know, Papa John's, for example, franchises the over, overwhelming majority of its restaurants, and it does wa- rather well. In uh, pizza, I would also argue, is probably a bit more universal. But Papa John's has about forty-five, has over 4,500 4, 4, restaurants today, and brings in annualized sales of about one point six billion dollars. Uh, if you look at something like Chipotle, that has about eighteen hundred stores, they bring in sales of more than four billion. And they actually have better margins too. So you know the the, mar- the 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 franchising thing is really all about volume, and and that's what Bojangles is going to have to do. And and if they want to hit that thirty five hundred number, you know that that's that remains to be seen. I mean, obviously the, we'll learn more as the uh, roadshow goes on. I mean, it's it's a good it's a good chicken biscuit, but I'm not sure it's going to be the best stock. One thing I do like just from a a, a management standpoint is. Their menu is basically the same as when the business started in the 1970s. And and say what you will about people looking to eat healthier and and uh, going organic and all that sort of thing. To me, there's something a little admirable about them just saying, you know what, this is what we do. This is who we are. We think we do it well. And you know what you're going to get when you come here. Yeah, and, you, and by the way, it's not salad. <laughs> you're right, and that's so they know what they do. They do it really well, and they're going to keep on doing it. I think that's a good point you make there because we've we've heard a lot about the breakfast wars with McDonald's and Taco Bell and Starbucks and whoever else trying to figure out. Well, do we do breakfast all day long, or what's the deal there? You know, I was looking through the S1 here for Bojangles, and I, I got to say, I like their value proposition as stated in the S1 because it's simple. And I'll quote this: breakfast served all day. Every day, end quote. Simple. They know what they do. They do it well. I like that. I have to do a little research because they do have locations in Virginia. You know, it is good in advance of the IPO. Radio at fool.com is our email address. Uh, got an email from Jonathan Cunningham in Tampa, Florida. Uh, I'm not a a, a, a very uh, well laid out lengthy email. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's basically what Jonathan is getting to is about the idea of holding cash in your portfolio. And um, he had modeled out different scenarios uh, where. If you took cash and you bought on various dips, a stock dip of five percent, ten percent, etc., 
basically saying, you know, and this is how he closes the email, even with perfect market timing at the bottom of dips, a strategy of buying regularly has similar results in the long run. With this known, does it really make sense to ever hold true cash in a portfolio? Were yeah, you? I mean, I, it was a very thoughtful email. I appreciate you sending that, Jonathan, because I think he asked a great question there. And you know what we we espouse here a lot is is consistent investing, right? Investing in the good times and the bad times. And generally speaking, I do agree with the notion that dollar cost averaging into your investments on a consistent basis is a smart way to go about things for many investors. And I think that's basically the point he was getting at was just doing it consistently on a you know a regular basis. You'll hit some highs and hit some lows, and really on at, you know at the end of the day, it kind of averages all out. Uh, yeah, I, I think that every investor has sort of their own situation, and in in many cases. Uh, you know, I think cash can can offer you a number of different options. I think uh, you know, cash certainly offers protection to the downside, as many fund managers would say. I mean, when the market tanks and you have zero cash, well, that sucks because you can't <laughs> do anything, and then you're a desperate seller if you want to raise funds to buy you know stocks and take advantage of these dips. So, I'm not sure if the assumption with Jonathan was that regardless, you always consistently have cash coming in. Or if you're just building that cash up and then buying on a quarterly basis or whatnot. But I mean, I think everybody's situation is different. I'll just use mine here as an example. You know, I have a 401k here at work, and and for you know for that I invest consistently. Every two weeks, part of my paycheck comes out and goes into that 401k, and you know it invests in the good times and the bad. Essentially, a dollar cost averaging, and that's great. I basically am following that logic that Jonathan uh, is is uh, framing up there. Uh, now I have also an IRA. And a another discretionary account that I manage, uh, you know, through my Scott Trade relationship, and those are those are fund those are accounts that I, I add funds to them as I can. Um, those are not the funds that I add regular add to regularly like I would with my four hundred one k. But I, I add to them as I can, and so for me, that's a bit different. I mean, if I'm all in on my IRA and I have zero cash, and then the market tanks, I mean, I'm stuck. I can't take advantage of any dips, and I can't do anything about it. Um, you know my 401k. I'm not really going to worry about that, but I'm going to keep investing in in that every two weeks because I intend you know to keep on working and, and getting paid. So so I think you know it's it's not a question of one right and one wrong. I mean I think that you can utilize both philosophies really because I mean in today's day and age you're more than likely going to have more than one account that is investing in some capacity. Uh, but but I mean you know to, to his point there I think he does he does make a great point there in the merits of of dollar cost and uh, dollar cost averaging and, and just doing it regularly. All right, before we wrap up, even non golf fans know when the Masters is on and you're you would you're, think that wouldn't you? I mean you got to believe. I think so because I'm I'm not nearly the fan of golf that you are. Uh, but it it is probably the one golf tournament that I will make a point to check out over the weekend. Um, the history is a big part of it. Um, obviously, it is it is heavily promoted. But as a golf fan, give me give me one golfer I should keep my eyes on as we head into the tournament. I will, and I'll also say just uh, you know in line with our earlier discussion, that's a great example of you know CBS has owned the rights to the Masters forever. And you know, with with the change in 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 our you know mobile environment and the way we access things now, they've built out a phenomenal app for the Masters where you can go in there and basically watch the entire tournament from start to finish, pretty much. Um, so, just I think another good example of really the, the changing landscape there of, of television. Uh, so, for me, you know, this is obviously the big story. I think uh, the return of Tiger Woods and 
who knows what to expect with him. I'd be very surprised to see him actually um, compete for this. Like I, I think he'll, you know, a goal for him is probably just to make the cut and, and walk away uninjured, uh, make just steps forward. So I think that you have two situations here. It sounds like it's going to be a very rainy week. And when it rains there, that golf course gets very, very long because the ball just doesn't roll anywhere. So it would favor a very long hitter like Roy McIlroy, who's the number one player in the world. But my guy that I'm looking out for, I'm pulling for him every week, is Jordan Spieth. Um, 21-year-old phenom, Under Armour guy. you got to love that. Uh, he's won twice already this year. Just, you know, really, really uh, confidence is, is growing. He's a tremendous putter. He played very well there last year. He, he competed. He was he was in the running for it. And, um you know, I think I, I like where his head's at. I think he's got a good shot. If the conditions are going to favor long ball hitters, does that bode well for Happy Gilmore? Is he playing? <laughs> he's not, but I have to Damn believe it. that if he was, <laughs> if he was, your shooter McGavins of the world would have to be on on serious lookout. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hell. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.